podcast one production. In the next 50 years, there will be more food eaten than in the entire history of humanity. And currently, we only know how to produce about 30% of that. Welcome to AgriMinders. I'm Chris Russell. This worrying prognosis was given by Dr Megan Clark, who was the former head of Australia's premier research body, the CSIRO. Despite having spent 40 years as an agricultural scientist, I was shocked when I heard this, and I was really concerned about where we would find this extra 70% to feed the world, because if we don't resolve this, hundreds of millions of people will go hungry. But what does this mean for Australia in particular? How will this affect us? And what are we doing about meeting the challenge? That is what I'm exploring throughout this series by discussing these issues with the key intellects and custodians of agriculture in Australia. Most of us won't remember the food shortages our parents and grandparents experienced in the 40s and 50s. We become accustomed to just walking into the supermarket and grabbing a litre of milk or a loaf of bread without even considering affordability, let alone availability. But in the next 50 years, or even 20 years, that could all change for us. The cheap energy and water we previously enjoyed in the 1990s is already a thing of the past. What about food? The University of Queensland has estimated that in Australia, the price of vegetables could increase by a third, and even more for fruit. Just imagine bread at 30 cents a slice. But when we look at food production down the track, what is the priority for Australian farmers? On one hand, six to seven kilos of grain will produce one kilogram of beef, which the Asian market are demanding and can earn a farmer a high return. But on the other hand, six kilos of rice will feed a person for 13 and a half days. And a kilo of beef would only provide enough calories for one to two days. So where should we put our efforts? Satisfying the high price markets or feeding future generations? The key to our challenge of producing this extra 70% of food in the next 50 years could perhaps best be summarised as the three Ps. Productivity, the principles of ethical and sustainable production, and a transparent provenance or traceability for each kilogram of food we produce. So let's start with water. Water is the key to all agricultural production. As Samuel Coleridge-Taylor said, Water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. And this has never been more relevant. Water is fundamental to human existence. And whilst oil has been the common link in most of the major conflicts in the late 20th century, it is more likely that water will be the trigger for major conflict in the 21st century. Unlike oil, water can't be substituted, manufactured or replaced with alternatives. Further, it's difficult to steal and it's too expensive to transport large distances. Apart from food production and drinking, it's needed for energy production and cooling, medicine, manufacturing, as well as being a non-negotiable requirement for sustainability of our environment. Three quarters of the world's surface is covered by water, but only 1% of that is fresh, non-frozen surface water. 
available for drinking, personal use and irrigation. Before we consider Australia, however, let's look at the global situation. My first agriminder is Dr David Mickle, who provides a global perspective on water management between countries which don't even share a common culture or political obligation. Welcome to AgriMinders, David. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. I guess the assumption in the population is that most wars that we're looking at, particularly today and even in recent times, have all been about oil and maybe religion, but not about water. But is that actually the case? Well, water has certainly been an element of conflict worldwide, historically and more recently, but usually not the the sole element, that precisely because water uh, is so essential to life and is such an important component of so much of our economy and societies, uh, vital for agricultural production, for energy generation, for transportation, uh, it has uh, religious and spiritual significance. So many conflicts that uh, are oriented around other issues Uh, territory, uh, identity, ethnic conflicts may have a a water component. Um, Water uh, historically has not been the sole generator of declared wars and international conflicts, but it has been a a, a contributor particularly to more localized uh, conflicts, uh, disputes over access to canals or to uh, wells in agricultural societies, and those conflicts may be boil over into larger tensions between communities or even between countries. But but again, the the sources of conflict are are complex and there are often many contributing causes of which uh, access to adequate and safe supplies of water may be a contributing grievance. And in fact, political scientists often talk about what they call the performance legitimacy of governments to supply public goods like water and sanitation. And people are, are quite susceptible to uh, lack of access to water, to that vulnerability, and to uh, blaming or holding a grievance against their governments for failure to supply that resource. It's it's a quite visible uh, governmental failing, Uh, so it can be a a source of complaint and and conflict uh, against a government. I guess I was thinking probably also from the point of view of sort of discontent in the people. When people go to war, it's usually because they're not happy with their lot, you know, be it through lack of food, poverty, drought. And when you think that 40% of the people in Syria, for example, are are water insecure and they've just been through a terrible drought back in 2006 to 2010, um, it seems to me that that the trigger, although overtly is all about the king and the religion and so on, the sort of underlying discontent often comes with water. Absolutely. So uh, there were in Syria uh, not only the contributing factor of the the drought and the environmental pressures, but also specifically, as you mentioned, there were uh, inapt, inappropriate governmental policies uh, around agricultural production and uh, farm support and rural livelihoods. So the the grievances, the popular grievances, were really dual-edged. There were both the grievances against inappropriate uh, and ineffective government policies. Uh, at the outset and grievances against failure of the government to respond to uh, the drought and to environmental pressures. So government was both a contributor in some ways to water stress through poor policy and then an exacerbator because of the failure to address those challenges. And absolutely, as you say, that uh, because water is so important to uh, livelihoods and economic development, um, the United Nations, for example, estimates that 40 
percent of all employment worldwide is in uh, water dependent sectors like agricultural mining um, and when uh, access to water is uh, hindering or impeding economic development then yes absolutely uh, that's a grievance people uh, become upset with with their lot and with the, the failure of communities or countries to uh, to deliver that public good and and I guess tied to that and recognition of that it's often some of the things that are attacked in times of war and that sees massive infrastructure destroyed I, I you know even going back to the Second World War the RAF had the dam busters going that through now to ISIS who ISIS used water infrastructure and blew that up and they they stole chlorine out of water infrastructure plants and used that as gas warfare I mean water seems to pop its head up anywhere as somewhere you can really hurt people where it hurts. Sure, because water is so essential, uh, it is a, a choke point in time of conflict. So uh, not only can it be a contributor to, to sources of tensions to gain access to, to water, but then once uh, conflict has begun, it's a vital uh, bottleneck in the economy of a way of strangling uh, your opponent if you're able to cut off water supplies or control water supplies. And in a way, as your example of ISIS in Syria suggests, um, in some conflicts we see almost a, a kind of return to medieval siege warfare by controlling water supplies uh, or controlling dams that uh, supply uh, not only irrigation and drinking water but hydropower, uh, that it's a way of uh, you know, putting a thumb on the jugular of your opponent of strangling their, their economy or controlling their territory. And, and I note that um, a strategic foresight report back in 2013 found that of the 37 countries at that time that was seen as being at risk or involved in severe conflict, every one of them did not have interboundary agreements with its neighbours about water. Uh, yes, so that uh, there's a good reason to to think and to hope that cooperation and particularly uh, uh, more structured agreements around water resources can help foster wider collaboration, that they can be an element of confidence building between communities. Those cooperative processes can take some time to develop. So um, we shouldn't place uh, you know, too much uh, emphasis on the aspiration that you know, simply by creating creating a cooperative agreement between countries that uh, have other tensions, that that will resolve all of their problems. But it can certainly be uh, an element of promoting uh, wider cooperation and uh, building infrastructural frameworks that can support that uh, collaboration. And countries that do have agreements um, are much more likely to uh, abide by them and to avoid water-related conflicts and, and perhaps even uh, larger conflicts. So think just of one example of India and Pakistan, two neighboring countries that have historically uh, fraught, tense, difficult relationships. The one formal treaty that those two countries shares is a treaty over the Indus waters. And that treaty has lasted, has not been broken through two wars, three, depending on how you count the conflicts. Even during those wars, both countries continue to abide by the treaty. They do, but uh, most people, again, see that as a problem with territory and religion, but actually underlying that is is a conflict or potential conflict about control of those headwaters of those rivers, which are so critical to, to India. I understand that the irrigation areas along the Indus there are some of the largest, 26 million hectares or something of land is uh, is irrigated along those rivers, totally dependent on that water, isn't that right? 
Uh, Pakistan even more so, but yes, the, the Indo-Gangetic Plains, and, and particularly the irrigation system within Pakistan, it's the largest contiguous uh, irrigated area in the world. Uh, the Indus Basin is the breadbasket for both India and, uh, and Pakistan, uh, and uh, Pakistan particularly, even more so than, than India, Pakistan is vitally dependent on the, the waters of, uh, of the Indus, which flow first uh, through India, thereby contributing to the suspicion and the tension that is also related to other causes, but contributing to the suspicion that you know, India is in a position to control uh, Pakistan's water resources uh, and, uh, and, and so much of their, their agricultural economy, that uh, around a fifth of uh, the GDP um, and even more employment in Pakistan uh, is, uh, uh, is agricultural. Uh, mm. And likewise in, likewise in India. Associated with that, David, is the fact that about 22% of the total population of the world, that's a lot of people, that's a couple of billion people, live in river basins where there's more water being taken out that's being put in. Now, you can't solve that problem with inter-country agreements. How, you know, what do we, what do, we do about that? Do we have to move them? Well, no. Um, so that's a, that's a, a very good point. That um, worldwide, uh, the geographical distribution of the population is not proportionate to uh, the available water resources. So, you know, as you were saying, there now a significant portion of the world's population lives in in basins that hydrologists call closed basins, meaning that under current management practices all of the available renewable water in those basins is already attributed to various human uses or to sustaining vital ecosystems. Um, and the, uh, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development thinks that by mid-century, almost 4 billion people uh, will live in basins that are experiencing significant uh, water stress. International cooperation is can be part of uh, addressing those, uh, those problems, but there are also many other solutions and approaches that we need to take as well. Um, and agricultural efficiency is is definitely one of those. You know, the, the 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 bank robber, the American bank robber, Willie Sutton, famously said, "You know, why do I rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Why should we concentrate on water use and efficiency in the agricultural sector? Because that's where the water use is." When you're looking at global water policy, obviously urban water use is sort of thing that's hard to put value on. You've just got to have it compared to the massive amount of water that's used in irrigation areas or do you just not produce the food? You know, there's a real conflict there between water use and food production like there is between, you know, ethanol or food use out of grain crops and you've got that tension all the time. Uh, absolutely, and that tension is uh, is there in our policies and national legislation. That in fact, many countries uh, explicitly prioritize drinking water uh, over agricultural other uses in their national legislation or even in their their constitutions. The the economic benefits of any given irrigation scheme will depend on you know the the construction, the maintenance, the operation costs, and also of course what you're what you're growing. 
growing um, and the return on uh, on your crop. But uh, it's also true that uh, agricultural policy and uh, national food security are, are often not policies that are driven by economic priorities. They're often driven by social or political priorities of supporting rural livelihoods or supporting rural constituencies, uh, providing uh, for economic development in uh, in rural or more remote areas. And so the economic uh, cost-benefit analysis may be a, a secondary consideration. And the policymakers may be quite aware of that trade-off, that it, you know, it costs more or in a calculation of economic returns, this doesn't make sense to support a given project or a given scheme, but there are other reasons uh, to do so. Um, on the global scale, one approach uh, that is uh, increasingly relevant and uh, and discussed in policy circles is what's called the virtual water trade, which uh, essentially means that in given crops or really in, in any product, it's possible in a broad sense to uh, estimate or to calculate uh, how much water went into the production of that kilo of rice or, you know, that kilo of coffee grounds or what have you. Um, and that in a globalized uh, system of agricultural trade, that it may make more economic sense to grow certain crops in areas where more water is available and uh, export them to water poor areas that, uh, you know, it doesn't make sense to grow rice in Western India, for example, it would be better to grow it in Eastern India or to import it, import it from elsewhere. And this actually been a strategy that was famously adopted by Israel, which in the 1970s, uh, people talked about Israel as being a country that was going to run out of water, uh, the way that we sometimes talk about countries like Yemen today. And Israel reconfigured its agricultural economy to not grow certain crops, uh, to enhance uh, agricultural water use efficiency, uh, and to import uh, other, uh, other products and crops so as to not to strain uh, its available water resources. But I mean, with Israel, you, we just need Israel to become good buddies with Turkey and and Sudan, a couple of other places, and work out their their water strategy between them. I just wonder whether Mr. Erdogan in in uh, Turkey is going to be the the uh, the next uh, Solomon-like figure who will sort that sort of an issue out. Well, you put your finger on it, that the question that uh, arises around uh, approaches like the virtual water trade of uh, relying on the exchange economy to uh, to distribute uh, water-rich products uh, or to effectively distribute the water resource uh, embedded in, in crops depends on that type of political willingness to uh, be interdependent with your neighbors or with the global agricultural economy for your food security, and that's exactly a vulnerability that many countries are not necessarily willing to take on. So you mentioned Turkey. Um, in the Tigris-Euphrates uh, basin, uh, shared by Turkey, Iraq, Syria, uh, partially by Iran, from a, a hydrological standpoint, it might make sense to say Turkey is the water-rich country. Syria and Iraq are arid countries. It doesn't make sense to build dams and store water and irrigate crops in those arid countries because you lose so much water to evaporation, et cetera, both hydrologically and economically. It might make more sense to generate hydropower and build irrigation schemes in Turkey and then for uh, Iraq and Syria to import those crops. But that relies on the premise that Iraq and Syria would be willing to depend on imports 
from Turkey for their food security. Mm. Uh, and many countries are not willing to, to do that, and not necessarily even for reasons of historical, uh, you know, political tensions between uh, rival neighboring states, but for concerns about the, the volatility of the, the world agricultural economy. Think of the, the food price shocks of uh, 2008 or 2010, 2011, that um, relying on global markets for your, your food supplies can render you vulnerable to fluctuations in, in the prices of those crops. And uh, many countries, many polities are not necessarily willing to p- place their populations in the situation situation where um, their their people may no longer be able to afford the food supplies to which they become uh, accustomed. Yeah, so I'll, I'll come back to treaties. Just before we go on to that, though, you mentioned a minute ago about water use per kilo of rice, and there's been a lot of studies done here in Australia. For example, we grow rice here. Uh, and we're a dry continent, and it takes about, according to our studies here, about 5,000 litres of water to produce a kilogram of rice. And many would say, well, is that the best use of 5,000 litres of water? But if you talk to the big rice players, and we'll be interviewing some of those later in this series, they would say the only reason we use that water to grow rice is because that's where we make the most money out of the water. Same with cotton. Um, you know, they don't grow cotton because they're in love with cotton. They grow it because with their water allocation, they can make more money out of it with cotton than they can with growing some other crop. Um, and then you've got a situation where you've got the production of grain versus the production of grain-fed beef. Now, you've got a country like China where in the same country you've got people who are who are dependent entirely on, on rice and grain for their food and, and a kilo of rice produces about 13 and a half days food for, a, for a, a person in one of those countries and yet their middle class is saying, no, we'd prefer you to stick that kilo of grain down the throat of a beast and six kilos of grain will produce one kilo of beef and one kilo of beef will feed someone, well, with calories probably only for a day and and maybe in protein for a couple of days, and the, it's just not there. But it, you, how do you run around saying to people, right, you mustn't grow rice because, you know, we need the grain, and to someone else saying you mustn't eat meat because, you know, you, we, it's more efficient for us to feed you on rice? It's a tricky proposition, and that's one of the most challenging areas of uh, water resources policy is uh, the different economic and societal incentives uh, and, and signals to producers and consumers about what to grow, what to eat, uh, and do prices reflect those uh, those incentives? That as populations grow richer, as they urbanize, they typically have more more money to spend on, uh, on food, and they have different dietary possibilities. So it, you're right, it is very difficult to then say to, uh, to populations, to people who, who find themselves themselves able to afford new products and, and services that uh, they couldn't afford before, that they shouldn't do that or, or, or um, shouldn't avail themselves of those possibilities because of, uh, you know, environmental or water security considerations. Or Big Brother says so, or, you know, United Nations says so. I mean, no one cares about that. They, they only live once. They want to live what they do. And then, of course, you know, incentives are also um, varied and often 
perverse on the production side as well. So not only do different countries uh, subsidize uh, agricultural water use or perhaps they don't charge uh, for water use uh, from irrigation canals or from wells. There may be no volumetric tariffs, etc. But they may also subsidize other inputs that in turn exacerbate the demand on water resources. So they may subsidize uh, the the energy required to pump up water from from wells, or they may subsidize um, uh, fertilizers or pesticides, and that uh, make it more profitable for farmers to produce more and therefore to to demand more water. It's a difficult uh, circle to square, and it's a an area where economists have many suggestions on how policies might be more rationally organized. But you know, as you've suggested, they depend on fostering behavioral change and different priorities uh, in people, and uh, they may also depend to a certain degree on altering people's identities or conceptions of what they do. So, you know, you raised the issue of, you know, asking a consumer to eat rice instead of a chicken because it you know you can get more calories from the rice than from uh, the than devoting that rice to feeding a chicken and, and then trying to to get your calories from the chicken but on the other side of that if you're asking farmers who have been rice farmers or fisher folk or wheat farmers uh, for generations that that's what their families do that's what their communities do that's their identity and you ask them no it would make more sense for you to change change your crop, that also is a difficult behavioral change, um, that they may feel that that's not who they are, that's not what their family has done. They may feel that switching crops is is more risky, they're uncertain of what the markets might be, they don't know uh, who their their consumers would be for this new crop the way they know that they can take their their wheat into town or deliver it to a certain uh, supplier or or middleman and and get a price that uh, they know and that they're familiar with. That as well can be a challenging policy proposition. So uh, can I come now to Egypt and and Africa? Um, I was in Egypt not that long ago, and uh, at that time they were this, they're well underway with the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, as I remember, up on the headwaters of the Blue Nile. And the the president of Egypt made it quite clear that if they if they start and try and and fill that lady up in you know a couple of years, he's going to put a missile right through the middle of it because the entire population of e- Egypt live along the Nile and the rest of Egypt is basically unpopulated because it's just sand and desert. And in fact, when you go down the Nile, it's fascinating. You see this green goes out for 200 metres either side and just stops. So, I mean, there's a situation where Ethiopia is entirely dependent on that dam and the hydropower it's going to generate as part of their economic plan. And Egypt is saying, well, sorry, we're entirely dependent on the the, the water you're sending us now is not enough. If you're going to dam more of it, then... And even for a couple of years while you fill it up, that's unacceptable to us. Who steps in there and resolves that issue? It's a very difficult needle to to thread that, as you've said, Egypt uh, is about 95, 97% dependent on the Nile and only the Nile for its entire water supplies. Uh, the rainfall is so scant in Egypt uh, that uh, really the Nile is their, uh, their source of water. On the other hand, Ethiopia, four-fifths of the Ethiopian population has no access to electricity. And the, the GERD, the Grand Ethiopian, 
Ethiopian Renaissance Dam could supply electricity to that uh, population, as well as for export to other neighboring countries that also have uh, inadequate electricity supplies, and even potentially to, to Egypt. Now, operationally, that raises an interesting question, which is that... Egypt's concern is that Ethiopia, by building the dam, would be in a position to withhold water flows into into Egypt or to disrupt the, the their their timing, their seasonality. But if Ethiopia's objective in building and operating the dam is to generate hydropower, then they need to let the water flow through the dam in order to turn the turbines. That withholding the water um, is a, a losing proposition. In addition, Egypt, through its own uh, Aswan Dam, has uh, access to a certain amount of of stored water supply and could uh, mitigate, uh, to a certain degree, fluctuations in the flow coming from from Ethiopia through its own capacity to store water. But managing that water governance approach requires a degree of collaboration and trust between the the two countries, a willingness on the part of Egypt to accept the idea that Ethiopia will manage the dam for hydropower uh, and continue to allow the water to flow and in on an annualized basis or on a multi-year basis not 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 withhold or or, or withdraw or divert uh, essentially any water uh, at all. And Ethiopia would uh, uh, accept the idea from Egypt that you know Egypt could be a purchaser of some of the power generated by the dam, or that Egyptian considerations should figure in the the seasonal and the annual management of uh, of the flows from the dam. And the trust to do that uh, isn't there uh, right now. But in uh, the broader scheme of things, there are mutual gains, mutual benefits to, to be had regionally and, uh, and specifically between Egypt and Ethiopia on the basis of uh, a, a, an agreed management scheme. So why did it take until November 2016 for the Security Council of the United Nations to meet and start talking about all these issues. I mean, these issues have been around for a long time. I mean, there's all sorts of, you know, United Nations uh, Secretary Generals have been talking about them, and yet not until two years ago, not even two years ago, do we actually get the Security Council to meet and have their first ever meeting, a focus meeting on water peace and water security. Uh, Why did that take so long? The Security Council was founded and thinks of itself as being an institution for addressing uh, a certain category of international security concern. And uh, not only in Security Council, but many member states and, and other stakeholders as well didn't think of environmental issues as being appropriate uh, questions to be taken up in the Security Council, that there were other fora, uh, even within the United Nations, for tackling environmental or natural resource issues. Um, And so many member countries uh, opposed uh, the idea. Um, And there were uh, concerns on on both sides about... um, on the one hand, failing to recognize and meet the security challenges that may arise around uh, tensions over natural resources, for example, on the one hand, but then on the other side, concerns about uh, what uh, has been termed uh, securitizing or the securitization 
of different international challenges, uh, particularly in the environmental field. Um, so, for example, if countries and communities begin to think of managing shared water resources as a security issue, one that might generate conflict, even outright war, then governments, politicians may think of water not in terms of cooperative management, how do we best share uh, this common resource, but in terms of taking security measures to ensure that my people, my country can access water and that may come at the detriment uh, of other people's access. So some voices advance the idea that the risk in tackling some of these issues in the Security Council was the, the, the lens that that could then put on these challenges might other than fostering cooperation, in fact, generate conflict. Yeah. So um, is, I'm wondering whether it's going to come from the UN or whether I, 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 my reading has taken me back to Cardinal Mazarin back in the 17th century, who was the first guy that I could find who actually decided that, the, in his case, the Rhine River, rather than being a boundary, should become a corridor for trade. And, in fact, the, West, the Westphalia Treaty, which was written in that 17th century, has survived right through to the time of the EU, effectively, and the EU sort of taken over from it. So, I mean, are there any Cardinal Mazarins around today who are going to, from a... In, from an actual country perspective, be it, you know, Erdogan in, in, um, in Turkey, be it, you know, India, be it China, are there any people like that today who you think have got the potential to spawn some of these major basins into a cooperative approach to water, interboundary approach, which will then take the pressure, all that pressure out of potential conflict between those countries? Well, again, you know, the, water has historically been uh, a, a a viable source uh, and a longstanding source of cooperation. So you mentioned, you know, Cardinal Mazarin, but in fact, the Code of Hammurabi contains provisions about maintenance of public canals. Um, so there in the, in the world's very first legal codes, responsibilities and duties around managing shared war, uh, water resources were, uh, were incorporated. Uh, so there is a, a historical and, and a general recognition there can be of the potential for cooperative management of, of shared water resources and for that cooperation to, to spur, to, to undergird uh, wider confidence, confidence building and cooperation. Um, and there, there are legal provisions, institutional arrangements, uh, templates and models that are available to policymakers to draw on. So uh, the the 1997 UN Convention on the Non-Navigational Uses of International Water Courses uh, provides a certain number of principles for cooperative management that are available to to, to policymakers at, at any scale, and they include information sharing, uh, consultation over uh, management changes or infrastructure that has implications for other riparians, um, a duty to not cause uh, harm or damage to downstream neighbors, um, a, a principle of uh, using
using uh, data and information uh, to to instruct uh, and to scientifically inform effective management schemes, uh, cooperative conflict resolution, uh, and there are uh, examples around the world of uh, arrangements that uh, that do embody these uh, principles. But the challenge is to to spread them to to identify that that cardinal, as you're saying, uh, those politicians, those individuals, those countries, those actors and institutions uh, that will support uh, and, and advance uh, the these principles. Because even in the developed world, even in Western Europe, um, you know, only about a, a third, I think, of river basins in Western Europe have institutional international arrangements that are actually uh, built upon the principles that I just enunciated. And in the developing world, in Africa, Asia, Latin America, less than a fifth of the basins uh, have those type of arrangements. So we, we've, we've got a long way to go. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? In the long term, I'm optimistic. In the immediate term, I'm cautious that... Uh, that because water is so vital to our societies, to our economies, to our, our livelihoods, um, and because its management is a political question, uh, it can absolutely become a, a source of political grievance and political conflict. The, so the, the political scientist Harold Laswell famously said that politics is basically a question of who gets what, when, where, and how. And water politics is politics just like that? It's the same questions. And any issue, any resource that can become a source of political discussion and political debate can become a source of political conflict. But it can also become a source of political agreement and political cooperation. And the benefits to cooperation, because water management, water cooperation doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. Um, that, As we were saying before, because water resources can support multiple uses, agricultural drinking water, industry, etc., the water that I use doesn't have to be the water that you don't benefit from. Or the water that I use to grow food can be the crop that you buy from me or the hydropower that I buy from you. The benefits to cooperation are so much greater than the risks of, of conflict that in the longer term, I'm optimistic. Yeah. I, know, I mean, in Australia, where we've got six sovereign states who speak the same language and come under the same federation, we have enough problems. You can, I can just imagine where we're going to be with countries that don't even like each other to start with. So, uh, well, Dr. David Mickle, thank you so much for being a true AgriMind and AgriMinder for our global water resources. It's been great to have you on AgriMinders and uh, we wish you well as you continue to work with uh, water policy globally. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Just thinking about the challenge of organising an agreement between diverse countries like Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Israel and Palestine all politically at war and yet sharing the same water resource makes the hair curl compared to the problems that we have in Australia. And yet clearly the issues are the same, although the solutions may be different. David's helped us to have a look at exactly he goes about overwhelming not just shared concerns about the availability of water, but where these are enmeshed with political bias and with cultural difference and with requirements and challenges for each of those populations that are so different and controlled by such different authorities. Makes the Australian job sound easy, 
So in the next episode, we're going to focus on Australia and actually look at the challenges of having to bring together disparate needs between the states, but happily don't have the political and cultural differences that David has referred to in his discussion with us today. Join me in our next episode of AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search AgriMinders on Apple Podcasts.